Hey everyone, it's Nishitani. Today's podcast is with Jan Schwalb. Jan is uh, many things, videographer, teacher, gamer, but he would probably describe himself as a storyteller first and foremost, no matter what medium he's using. Uh, Jan and I kind of go all over the map during this podcast uh, while trying to see the territory more clearly, but we discuss gaming, artificial intelligence, AR versus VR, digital versus physical reality, simulations, and psychedelics. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Jan. Um, it set off quite a few light bulbs in my world, so I hope it also inspires you and gives you a few insights. Enjoy the podcast, everyone. Welcome to you, Jan. Thank you for coming in here today. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to talk about this, Jordan. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. I start off, since this is obviously your first time doing the podcast, um, can you introduce uh, yourself to people and uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are? My name is Jan, and uh, I'm a storyteller. I try to simplify some of the more complex things and understand them myself. So through the process of being able to master something well enough to tell a story about it, I get to learn something. Interesting. So what is your medium of choice? A video. I like to produce uh, content with video, but that's um, a very fluid term as well, because what we know is video or film or, you know, even gaming, interactive stuff, it's all kind of merging together. It's all the same tools. So uh, what a term used to be called multimedia once upon a time when you transitioned across multiple disciplines, photography, video, film. So I guess uh, you could kind of... uh, take that stab at it. For me, I like to shoot cinemagraphs. I like to shoot time lapses. I like to shoot video. I like to do interviews. I like to do abstract stuff. So anything that's a moving picture, really, I think can capture the essence of uh, what you're trying to to tell. Okay. So you're saying multimedia. So do you think in the future, or have you already used, I don't know where this is at uh, technologically to be able to use the video, but um, what about using stuff like AR, or um, any AI-generated pictures or video um, that you can integrate with? Is that is that at a place where it's even usable yet? Or Absolutely. Is that I, like I don't know how familiar you are with some of the new productions that are coming out of Disney. For example, some of the uh, stuff like Mandalorian or Boba Fett or mm-hmm. um, Andor. Um, some of the new Star Wars properties that you're seeing there are exploiting some amazing new technology and video thanks to gaming. If you've ever played Fortnite, or if your kids have, thank them for it, because they've created something really powerful. Epic, um, the company behind Fortnite, has an engine available called Unreal. Unreal 5 is the latest one. And it allows you to build uh, photorealistic environments that you can live in, really. Um, For example, Mm -hmm. let's say it's a a kitchen that you want to walk into and you want to open the cabinets and see it. You could actually create that environment that people can walk into. That could, of course, be something that you experience with a VR headset, but you could also very easily create environments that look like they should be filmed on a green screen, but you don't have to do all that work in post-production at all because you can actually project onto LED screens that environment and light with that environment so an actor actually feels like they're on set. So when you're creating video now, you are able to create with worlds that don't exist. But also, on a flip side of that, they have a technology uh, called MetaHumans which allows you to create virtual 
actors, um, photorealistic actors that look pretty amazing. And you could drop them into this world as well. So you have lots of companies. Uh, I think the latest uh, was uh, Autodesk has joined forces with Unreal in some capacity to work with them. And uh, they're behind a lot of uh, 3D content that's being created for media and entertainment. And of course, there's lots of other tools that allow for real-time syncing of, let's say I wanted to walk into a world that's made out of mushrooms, for example, okay, right. Sonic 2 or something. I could build that world, say in Maya or Cinema 4D, and I could load that as a real-time environment into this Unreal Engine. I could also take my iPhone and have it capture my facial movements so it can track that onto an avatar that I create in that world. And I could actually put motion tracking suit on me and move around in that world. So people will see a video that looks photorealistic, as good as anything you'll find on TV. Um, recently, you've seen Bruce Willis doing this on a commercial in Russia. He licensed his face to be used as a deep fake. You've seen a bunch of these, I'm sure, Tom Cruise and everyone else. So um, these type of avatars can be created, environments can be created, and something that was uh, a result of basically a chemical process of just photographing something is now uh, created in real time. And it's as good as anything we can photograph, if not better. Yeah, I've seen some of this on some of these video games. Sometimes I'm watching a trailer for a video game, and I first I think it's a trailer for a movie. And then I yeah, realize it's a video game. <laughs> it blows me away every time. And that's why I, I kind of, uh, every time I step back and I say I do video production, I don't want to date myself because video production sounds like a, you know, a wedding videographer from the 80s because the mediums that we're working with today are so much beyond just basic video capture. Yeah. No, I've seen, I, I play like Naughty Dog games. Um, so like Uncharted and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And those are fun. I'm, I'm hooked into Fortnite. I mean, obviously I love Epic Engine, but what I love to see about games that are really geared towards bringing in the youth, right? So you have two games that I think are really popular in trying to get different audiences. And if you go in the under 12 audience, there's a game called Roblox, which is really popular. Mm -hmm. And if you're over 12, then there's Fortnite. But both of them do something really well. And they plug you into pop culture in a way you cannot be plugged in at that age, right? The music, the film references, all of the history, all of the different things that they build into these environments, into these worlds, I mean, kids know more about The Matrix than I do. And hell, they've never even seen the movie. Right. It's all in there. I mean, right. they're telling me about Deadpool and all kinds of storylines about Deadpool. They've never seen Deadpool. Right. They've never seen Deadpool. Interesting. So, and yet they know all about him. And that's because it's in the game. And these games are incredible platforms for education, for entertainment. And of course, there's a whole bunch of other nefarious things that can happen there, but they are environments in where people are actually spending a lot of time communicating and their avatars are a representation of them. So this is evolving, not just from an entertainment perspective, but from a gaming perspective. Because you, yeah, the meta world is very interesting. Yeah, it is. Do you, th do you think, um that people can be pulled more into a, a flow state with more photorealistic games. So the reason I'm asking is because I've played games that are very photorealistic or just, I feel like I'm totally ensconced in the world. Like I'm actually in a real place. Um, and then I've played ones that have that photorealism where I don't care and I'm not pulled in. And then for example, I can be totally absorbed into uh, Tetris 
that's yep. completely you know 16 bit whatever but i'm but i really feel absorbed and in a flow state in that game and i know a lot of people play video games because it puts them in a flow state but not all video games put you in that state the game actually has to be well crafted with a good narrative and and well made do you think that um this photorealism will actually give other games a chance to do this where they maybe wouldn't have done it before because they don't have as strong of a narrative um, or game. Yes. There's a couple of things there, right? Obviously the photorealism is really important because it creates um, a reference point for a world we want to be in. And um, the narrative really, that's the key. Cause I, I think if you can get on board with a, a really strong narrative and an environment where you feel you don't want to leave, you're comfortable, you're enjoying it, you're loving it. The visuals are amazing. Um, it creates a, a new consciousness and one that stays with you, I think, for a very long time after you even leave the game. It affects how you perceive the real world because at a certain level, you can integrate certain experiences that you found in game into the real world. Some of these games have actually structured themselves in ways where they mimic real world marketplaces and other things. And you could learn inside of the game. When you stop playing the game, though, you've learned a powerful skill that if you integrate into your real life, you can actually benefit your real life. Can so, you give me yeah. an example of that? Yeah, World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft is a really fascinating game. It's been around for a long time. There's lots of great articles on it. I'm not going to get too deep into it, but it's it's been there for like, what, 25 years now or, or something like that, mm -hmm. um, if not more. I played this game years ago, and I still remember why I started and why I played, and, and I have some great memories that I'll, I'll, I'll share. But what's interesting in this game, and you, you can find a whole bunch of articles on this, whether it's the Chinese gold farmers or anything else, you have so many people committing so much time. And it's obviously not as hardcore a game as it used to be because they're trying to appeal to many more people, but especially in the early days of what they used to call vanilla or, you know, before they added expansion and more worlds to that game, they, um, it was pretty complicated. You had 40 people working together, all led by a charismatic leader who knew what the hell he was doing. Otherwise everybody would fail and it would be a miserable waste of six hours. And everybody would, you know, spend six hours a day or more trying to kill something. And, it took a lot of effort. Now, if you would find certain things, you would actually have to improve your ability to kill that something, right? You'd catch fish, you'd make potions, you craft jewels, whatever it is you do, you could sell it on a marketplace. That marketplace is extremely evolved, so evolved that there was a whole phenomenon called Chinese gold farmers at one point where you had hundreds of kids sitting in a basement somewhere playing 24-7, harvesting gold that would then have a conversion online where people could pay real money to buy virtual currency to better their character in games so they could beat that one monster and get another item, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So that's um, that was the process. And it built a whole ecosystem. I mean, it, it, this game, this was popular, what I'm talking about, maybe 10 years ago at, at its peak. And if you still search, you still look, you see that you have exchanges. You can buy gold. You have a whole ecosystem for this. And there's site after site after site of this. So here's somebody exploiting something that's not even legal in a game, building a whole ecosystem and changing lives. There were, uh, there's a couple I think in China that played for 48 hours straight or so their child died because they didn't feed the child, the newborn. Jeez. I think they changed the laws in Korea or, or China or something, how many hours you could play. Or, it's, it's a really amazing game. And the company behind it, um, uh, I believe uh, Blizzard Entertainment owns the property. They're owned by, 
Universal or Vivendi or something like that. They're, so they're a big monster company. There's a lot of money went into creating a game that is as addictive as heroin, if not more. Yeah. Right? And intentionally so, because you want to spend more time there so they own your attention so they could market things to you. That's how, um, that's how it works, right? No, I mean, the marketplace is so robust that I remember when uh, Venezuela was free-falling their economy that at one point the Venezuelan, I think it's Bolivar, um, was worth less than World of Warcraft dollars or whatever wow. currency. Well, look at that. Yeah. See, just to even make that reference <laughs> with a physical country somewhere, no matter how messed up it is, it's a virtual property, makes money that's useless for anything real, has a currency that is more valuable than a whole country somewhere. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was insane. It, it was one of those things that people would show like, hey, look at this is even like a, you know infinitely rep replicable currency and it's still worth more than this. And that's why that's what the whole you know joke was about what happened to Venezuela's uh, money. But uh, it also kind of gives a case for uh, crypto and cryptocurrencies and that the gaming probably really paved the way for people to be like, hey, we're using these games. Why can't this translate? Why can't we use this um, in a different way as software eats the world? I'm a firm believer of these games creating the opportunity to not just do flow states, but actually teach you. So I've, I've been teaching for most of my life. I've, I've taught for six years at NYU Film School. I've um, taught at various training centers, spoken at trade shows like NAB, Seagraph, you name it, Macworld, all over the world. And again, I keep doing this. I keep coming back to teaching for one reason and one reason only, because the more I teach something, the more it becomes something that I truly master and learn. And I had a training center in New York. Uh, this was a while back, I'd say probably around early 2000s. And um, I had two interns that were starting my program and I wanted to do something radically different with them. They were there to learn Maya, 3D animation. They were college interns. They both had a good background, but not, neither one of them was a gamer. And they really didn't do 3D much. They just did 2D. And the biggest conversion from a 2D artist to a 3D artist is understanding Cartesian space because you're not just working with a flat screen, right? That just has up and down, left and right. You have right. some depth. So um, the first time we've actually portrayed that was when Descartes, you know, plotted those coordinates and we know them as Cartesian coordinates as X, Y, Z, because mm -hmm. we can represent something on a flat plane in three dimensions. Now, thinking that way and working that way is difficult for someone who's never done that before. And in 3D, you don't just move something left and right and up and down. You have to look at it in all of its views, top, front, side, the orthographic views. So you can actually move something front and back and not just in perspective on all three axes at once. Right. So that's that's difficult to grasp. People who play these games, first-person shooter games or World of Warcraft, a 3D environment where you're using both hands to look around with one hand and to move with one hand and to use your mouse to you know, do other things like where you're actually looking and what you're actually doing, it, it creates that same sense of working through a Cartesian space, but you're looking at it on a flat screen. So you're rewiring your brain to actually move naturally in that environment. And I wanted to actually take these kids since they didn't play that. And before I taught them a thing of Maya for like six months, get them to do nothing every single day, but play World of Warcraft. Right, and right. It, it was kind of weird. It was a weird experiment. Um, halfway through it, one of the kids was so upset about this. He wasn't learning anything. He was pissed off. He walked out on the internship. He didn't want to continue. Huh. Um, the other guy did not get discouraged. He stuck through another three months. Long story short, the other guy 
got an Academy Award <laughs> later on in life in 3D animation working on Spy Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, so uh, I, I don't know how much of an impact my insanity of making him play World of Warcraft had on that. Um, I would love to have that conversation with him one day. But um, it's again, it's it's not enough of an experiment to actually have anything other than this uh, anecdotal story to tell about. But it, it, it's something that I keep on coming back to. Again, with the World of Warcraft, the very reason I started playing that game is because I had a, a student that I met in one of my classes who lived in Bermuda. His uh, father was the governor of Bermuda. His grandfather was the governor of Bermuda. His great-grandfather was the governor of Bermuda. He did not want to be governor of Bermuda. He wanted to be a filmmaker. He wanted to make vampire movies. And he took a whole bunch of classes from me and uh, in that school. And then he wanted to take classes directly with me to fly to... Bermuda every so often and take a class. I could never talk to the guy, though. Every time I called him, he was busy. Email, he wouldn't respond to. Nothing else. He played World of Warcraft. And I could get in there and talk to him, schedule a class, and do business in the game. More so than I would on any other communication platform. And I actually had a few students like that. I was in a guild playing World of Warcraft once. And one of the guild leaders was receiving... Uh, an Academy Award for, I think, uh, some of the work he did in Narnia. They were nominated. And I could hear him on stage, the Academy, playing the fucking game. That's how <laughs> insane some of the people were doing this. So, yes, it's, uh, it's, it does affect your real life. At the very least, you're spending your waking hours playing this game. You're yeah. focusing your consciousness on something else. Now, we do this all the time, right? We spend at least eight hours a day not knowing what our brain is doing. Sometimes we remember it if we wake up in REM sleep, but we do this every single night. We plug into this alternative uh, frequency, this um, we're sleeping. We have some kind of a consciousness that's doing something because you know that in rapid eye movement uh, sleep, if we wake up, we'll remember what was going on and we could tell you some great stories. Mm -hmm. Amazing stuff. There are other states too. I have, so a I have a question. So many different ways of, uh, of, of so many different things that we can do from meditating to playing a game to you're changing the frequency of how your, your brain works. Right. Right. And that uh, with it, I think creates all kinds of opportunities. Now, you mentioned flow state. The games help you get a flow state. I sometimes I don't want to work at all. And one of the things that helps me dominate that day is starting up something like Fortnite and winning a game. And as soon as I win that game, I turn it off and I keep that energy and I'm crushing it. I could work for hours, not even thinking about the fact that I didn't want to work before. Okay. So question around that then, because they've done studies on people entering flow state in video games and most people when they stop playing the game, they are unable to integrate that flow state into their real mm -hmm. life. Right. And that's because they're addicted to the win, right? They're addicted to the win and they're going to continue to follow that, 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 the, the, the relief that they get from winning constantly until they lose. Mm. And then all that energy is gone. The momentum has gone. You actually feel worse than when you started. So I do agree with that. You have to quit when you're ahead. That's the key. Right. It's just like in a casino, right? You go in there, you hit a jackpot, you feel like you're a king. Take that money, go have a nice steak dinner, watch a show. But if you're going to sit down and play some more blackjack, you're going to lose it all. And you're going to feel worse than when you started. So I, I think it does have, there's some kind of a mechanism there that is rewarded for winning and definitely punished for losing that will change the way um, that flow state actually 
continues or not. So right. yeah, I definitely see that if people play longer, they're they're definitely not going to be able to integrate anything from it. Yeah, they're, they're just finding that most people they, they they play because they like the flow state and then they stop playing and they can't enter, right. they're, they can't they're enter into it in their the, life. To the chemistry. Right. It's all chemistry, right? Right. Um, at the very end, what's going on in our head? You know, you yeah. have dopamine, you have serotonin, you have all of these different things that are constantly being triggered based on what we think and what we do and how we act and how we don't act. And, you know, a, a lot of how our brain uh, frequency is, um, that's that's what's um, ordering up all the different cocktails, right? Yeah, the, there's so many people who like are now saying this is what they were worried about. They're talking about this in China and Korea. They're like, well, these kids prefer this reality um, more than... Um, like the real the real world, they're they're saying like, no, this is better. Um, well, then that's a, that's a good question, right? Is it better? What is the real world? I mean, this is a good question that I think we really need to kind of think about. We've um, kind of defined the real world with uh, our own personal limits. I like to kind of uh, equate it to taking a photograph, right? You take a photograph, let's say you take a black and white photograph. Um, we call it a black and white photograph because that is the most efficient way to describe it. However, black and white is really not part of it. It's more like shades of gray, right? So we don't call it, oh, give me a, a grayscale image, even though that's what it is. We call it a black and white, even though black and white is probably not even present. The black and white acts simply as a limit, right? We have um, a zero and a one, a binary limit right? Zero being black, one being white. And everything in between can be represented as a shade of gray. So, however, when we operate in what I, what's called a default node network, that's how our brain um, functions most of the time. That's the frequency at which we operate most of the time. I, I think the default node network reward, rewards compression more than anything, because if we spend time making choices, those choices come down to the limits that we're looking at. And those limits are personal, black and white, right? We're not looking at the gray to make a distinction. We're calling it a black and white image. And the more black and white images or grayscale images we look at, the more we see them as black and white images. We only see them as zero and one, what it is, right. not what's in between. And Your that's because it's trying to automate to it. Your brain's trying to automate the response. So it can right, it. right, right. We learn. Yeah. And that default node network rewards us for being able to jump the gun, right? The quicker we can jump to a conclusion, the better the reward. Right. But then you also have those moments where you need to expand out because it's not just about compression. It's about expand and then mm -hmm. recompress and expand. That's and where I think these altered states come into place. This is where I think it's important to decompress at night when you sleep and make sure that what you've run through so quickly, basically looking at its limits, at its choices, not what you actually looked at, but what you've defined it as. I, I think it is important to access different states of your mind in right. order to truly benefit the most from what is presented to you and to then find a way to integrate that into your real world where that default node network is trained to reject that the second you look at it. Right. I want to get into the different states here in a minute, but I want to quickly touch on this uh, video game thing, because I'll tell you one of the things that worries me about it is that it's the same with all this like kind of modeling of reality, whether it be in economics or climate or whatever it is, you're running everything on a computer and the computer works on um, linear algebra and the world itself is nonlinear. And no. you and you have, you know, you have all these equations like I can't go into a video game and I have a butterfly effect on something. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't go where the system responds endogenously 
to something that I do because it's all interconnected. Right. So it's like you said, it's on this Cartesian plane, it's on this kind of 3D thing, but it's still on this like limited mathematics that is not the mathematics that runs the real world. Um, and it's so it's this, it's this, it's this poor simulation of what it's like to be in reality. And people who never interact with reality in like a real way, never participate with nature and with certain things, they start to start to have a preference for these poorly simulated realities. Um and which are fun. I'm not saying they're, I'm not trying to bash them or anything like that, but it, it's, it's, there's, there's, they're thinking of it let more as a less of a vacation and more of a substitute. And I'm like, mm-hmm. my point is that when you interact with reality, you're not really doing that. So it's not, so it shouldn't be viewed as a substitute. What do you right. think? Of that? Well, I mean, I'm not going to jump into simulation theory just yet yeah. <laughs> that I am a big subscriber to that, but let's, let's think about what, um, what reality actually is, right? I think that's a, that's an important statement here. Um, let's. I want to co- go back to your question. I want to. I'll go off on a tangent here, but I want to make sure I address that. So before I do that, can you, can you run that question one more time? To rephrase the question is that the the mathematics used for computers, which is generally linear algebra, right, mm-hmm. does not comport to the mathematics of the natural world, which the natural world, due to its levels of complexity, is nonlinear. Um, and then it uses different types of calculus, uh, uses gauge theory, uses things that, you know, where we can talk about in like chaos or complexity theory, things like the butterfly effect, for example, uh, play into using this more um, nonlinear complex mathematics. So when we're in these game worlds, you're seeing these, these I think these kids or certain people, I'm not saying this is everybody who plays games by any means, um, but who don't have a relationship to this more complex mathematical set that is out there in the quote unquote real world. And so they're, they're comporting to this simulated, this less complex simulation. Mm-hmm. And there, and you see some people who I think the dangerous, you see people who like, they prefer it, but they're not realizing what they're missing out on in the more complex mathematical, we could call it a simulation. We could call it reality, whatever you want to say. But do you, do you kind of see what I'm saying there? Do you see like the... Absolutely, absolutely. I think in our need to describe the world, uh, whether it's Cartesian space to, you know, bring three dimensions into two or to uh, try to create experiences like games that represent real world experiences, we invent constructs that may not actually be real, like time, for example. You cannot tell anything without linear time if you're working in a binary system. You need to be able to use time. Otherwise, there's no progression. There's nothing. There's no story. So the real world works on quantum mechanics, or at the very least, we have uh, quantum mechanics on one side and uh, special theory of relativity from Einstein on the other side, and a big hole in the middle that doesn't really connect the two. So there's a lot we don't know about um, the real physical world yet that we're learning. There's a and third honestly, one. There's a third one. You there's you have the standard model which runs mm-hmm. on for like uh, photons, those kind of like. Then you have yep. the quantum, and then you have relativity, which handles gravity. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. But this, they, 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 they just don't cooperate too well together. There's something missing. And there's the, an the overlap that it yeah, doesn't sure. exist yet is because I feel we haven't been able to model it yet. So I, I do think that these games and these environments are a way for the general population to model reality and to really understand it. Because like you said, most of the games that we have right now have uh, a limit, a linear limit. And I think that has to do with our ability to understand our environment and our world. 
Can we literally do anything, describe anything without time? Yeah, I mean, it's no, we can't because no, we have we have an arrow. I can't imagine telling a story, whether yeah. it's a video or, or this podcast or anything without time. Well, it's, it's how we function. Yeah, we have to function that way narratively. Like we have we have to do that. I think I think when modeling the complexity, though, I, there's something where because this this modeling problem, it happens like you like you just said, happens everywhere. It happens in economics. It happens in climate models. And it's not that we don't know a more complex math. It's that we haven't learned how to maybe force that into a computer where it can yeah. do that. Um, it can do that for us. So I'm hoping like something like quantum computing, which moves at quicker speeds um, and uses entanglement, can maybe we can put different equations into those computers rather than just using linear algebra. That's one yeah. of my hopes. Yeah, I mean uh, the that Schrodinger equation. That's the the one end, right? And then the relativity on the other end. And I I wonder if by building systems based on what we know, and then exploiting the need for kids to win in those environments, if we can find what's missing. So I, I honestly think that once we start building on quantum computing, because games right now are built on you know linear computers, right. not they're binary. There's nothing quantum there. But what if right. we could make that leap and quantum technology is something that becomes available to the general population and we start to code differently? Yeah. Those uh, new environments, just like the Maya or the Cinema 4D or the Unreal Engine, those environments that I talked about that allow us to model space and time, if they're based on the physics that we now know of the quantum world, maybe the constructs we create there are actually entangled constructs i, th I yeah i uh, maybe i i think one of our other issues is how we create our ai at the moment so beyond having like the limited mathematics um and processing capacity i think we also have this kind of like top-down mentality we still take this uh brain in a vat kind of approach instead of a bottom-up yeah, of, it's, it's a machine um, learning model, right? We're just memorizing different right. things. But even, but even the autopoetic side, even the autopoesis of the machine learning is still this kind of centralized top-down thing. Yeah. And then it can kind of reverberates off from that. And it needs to be coming from uh, either direction, bottom-up and top-down. Like you need to have dumb robots that mm -hmm. are good for the greater whole, kind of like the way a human body works, right? Yep. All together, instead of it just like, it's not like that the brain directs everything and that's, you know, it's this, you know, thing in the machine or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're starting to think about these things now and how we can reorganize it and make it less mechanical and more organic. Well, I mean, these games are becoming a little bit more interesting, like Roblox. I mentioned that before, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the powerful things that I've witnessed there is I watched uh, my nephew and niece uh, play around. And this girl is like, I don't know how old she was, seven or eight years old. And she's trying to beat this level. And she's like, I'm going to be the first person in the universe to beat this level. I'm like, that's impossible. She's like, nope, nope. I'm the first person playing it because I just built that level. That's the her, you know, her cousin is saying that because he was sitting there making that level and she's playing that level all based on this engine that is now available to all these kids to model in these physics. Uh, they yeah. don't need to understand anything about physics because they have a subset of it available to them inside of this API that's been given to them to, to develop on. Yep. And they create environments which they perform in. And those yeah. environments get tweaked so they could continue to create more. 
Yeah, this is one of the things that's really exciting to me about like he's like Roblox or um I was I never got a Roblox I saw, but I had an old student who was into Minecraft. And I'm just thinking because you're watching this whole system of these people who inherited this system they didn't build. And mm-hmm. now it's like collapsing around us and all these kids are just learning how to build. Yep. And I'm like, this is perfect. It's like, amazing. This goes it beyond really Legos. <laughs> you know? Right. Because imagine Legos were a real world thing and we build buildings like that. How many kids would be ready for that job right away? Yeah, exactly. Um, and imagine if that's what we're doing with these machines now. We start building them based on what we're learning, based on what we're integrating into yeah. them. So they could now be used tools to reshape our world. Yeah, it's 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 a new frontier, really. I mean, uh, these, these kids are able to build and they're able to build in this digital layer. And the old legacy layer is inevitably just by in pure incentive having to overlay this digital layer onto everything or else they don't succeed in the physical layer. Like their business it really doesn't is, is there financial incentive for this? Yeah. And uh, there is because I'm watching my kid. Oh, I made this t-shirt. Then I got banned on my account because it was inappropriate, but I was selling it for nine Roblox or something. I'm like, what? They're making stuff and they're selling it. And people are buying these uh, fake dollars with real dollars. So there's a real way for you to impact and shape your life yep. with something that are just numbers that doesn't exist. Something that is just, you know, in this ether, in, yeah. in this metaverse. No, they're literally creating a whole new world and every single part of it. And th- I think that was my concern was that, I think that we, we already touched on it, but like that, you know, they're creating this and I totally understand the reasons why. And I, I'm, I'm also for a person of don't change the legacy system, build around them. And that's exactly what this is doing. Um, it's just, we need a better, more, better computing, more complex mathematics, and hopefully we can then overtake Honestly, the most realistic and easiest to interact with object is going to shape the future of these things, in my opinion. And it's going to require people to actually go back to the real world to integrate content back into the metaverse. If I want a great-looking rock, I'm going to go find a great-looking rock, photograph it, study every little pixel, make it into a voxel in this world so everybody can enjoy it. I, I think it's kind of we're looking at it from a perspective where people running away from the world to live in this fake world I think you're going to have people building this new world and coming back to the real world to integrate it into there. I think it's it's going to work both ways. Yeah, no, I agree. TV worked that way as well. A lot of people thought I'm, I'm not trying to be a Luddite or anything like a lot of people thought that, you know, people would be stuck in front of the TV and they would never appreciate anything. And that's not what happened. No, <laughs> no. I mean, yeah. uh, I want to get my kids this Oculus thing now because uh, I want them to work out and go to the gym, but I know I'm not going to get them to do that. But if I get them a game where they're active inside of this Oculus thing, I, I know that they'll be doing something yep. physical. Yeah. True, true. Interesting. So it's, I kind of want to, okay, I want to kind of shift. I want to rehash and then shift because um, we were talking about earlier um, the need to integrate these different states into yes. who you are. And I think um, all of what it means to be a quote unquote spiritual person is taking different states. So like all this symbolism from the past, the tree of life um, is the perfect symbol. I think for this is it's showing like these roots going down to hell and the tree branches going up towards heaven. And 
it kind of like to me it's the it's the perfect metaphor for multiple states like the worst state you can be in where you're really looking into the abyss of life and you're suicidal or whatever it might be you're on an addiction path down in like skid row and then all the way up to this like kind of enlightened state where you hit the state where you're because you're a serious meditator or you had a certain mystic experience on psychedelics or something like that and then all the like the normal default kind of states in between um and then there's all, all these levels and if you can integrate all these levels into who you are as a person, it kind of, you, then you really kind of know yourself from multiple angles. You've, you've put made like a, a state Picasso painting of yourself. So you can all of a sudden go zoop, every angle of me, you know, and you're still obviously still discovering within the States because each state is complex in and of itself. Um, but I think that's one of the parts of the journey and one of the, one of the goals uh, that people, that people should have. Yeah. Sometimes I think if the human mind is a symphony, I think um, what we've done is uh, literally killed the composer mm. and uh, the uh, entire orchestra is locked up somewhere in the dungeon and we have the guy on the triangle controlling everything. Um, Could make it it doesn't take genius to figure out how to integrate a lot of these uh, things into the real world. Although it did take a real genius to actually show us how. Uh, take a look at Albert Einstein, for example, right? He hacked the dream state in order to bring a lot of the stuff that he came up with in his theories into the real world. He used to take naps every day and he held a ball in his hand over a metal uh, tray. And when he dozed off and fell asleep, that ball would have fallen, made a sound. He got up and any ideas that he was having, he would write down. That was part of his process. That was part of his integration of taking something from a dream state and bringing it into the real world. Mm -hmm. um, I remember in, in high school learning about how benzene was invented. The uh, scientist there had a nightmare or a dream or something. He woke up and uh, he remembered of uh, seeing a snake eat its own tail. And he draw that, that whole thing that he saw. Mm. When he woke up, he had the formula for benzene. Um, it's remarkable how much happens outside of what we can observe in our conscious state, what we consider our conscious state, and how much we actually disregard as subconscious, unconscious, or insignificant in our daily life um, that actually shapes it. Yep. I totally agree. I mean, it's kind of like right now, I have no idea how I'm understanding what you're saying. Like, I don't know the process in what's going on in my brain mm -hmm. for how I'm understanding the words that I'm hearing through these, you know, headphones and to put them into ideas and then to respond to you. I have no idea how that works. <laughs> but yet we accept it as something that's normal. Right. And the second it doesn't work, we freak out. Yeah. It's like aphasia, right? You know, mm -hmm. these certain things, people, they lose that ability. Um, or I think the, the classic experiment was, uh, what is his name? Phineas Gage, who got the railroad spike through his skull. And then it like, cut out pieces of his personality or made him do different things. Um, and you don't, you know, you don't know it until you miss it. You're like, huh, I just, I automatically had this ability and what, the, where the hell did it go? You know, I don't know how to, how that works. I'm, I'm not conscious at all of this process. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know. we've, uh, we're learning a lot about different ailments of the mind, like dementia, Alzheimer's probably the one we know the most about. Yep. 
And for the last 15 or 20 years or however long it's been going on, the whole treatment of it has all been based on fraud because we don't know the fucking thing about it. And the reality is it was all based on the plaque that's building up in your brain, right? That's causing it, just like cholesterol in your arteries. That's all nonsense. Healthy people have that too. So that whole theory of trying to find a drug that will remove that plaque from your brain so you could deal with Alzheimer's, that was a fallacy. There's a drug on the market now that's been approved by the FDA that deals with the plaque. There's absolutely no indication of it doing anything to improve any of the symptoms of Alzheimer's, yet they're still promoting it because it's a good business move. Um, but the reality is, if you think about it, it's really not that complex. Um, the human mind, we, we've just talked about it constantly being stuck in this default node network until we give it relief at night when we go to sleep. And we don't let it do anything else. Well, think about your biceps, right? If all you did is focus on doing nothing but biceps and you wouldn't do your triceps or your traps or you wouldn't work out at all, or, or think about going to a gym and seeing one of those guys that like to work out their upper body but never do legs. See how yeah. unbalanced it is. When things don't get used. They get atrophied. And I think that a lot of that has to do with our mind. Uh, the different frequencies, uh, different places where our mind can go and operate, if they are neglected, if they are avoided, or if they are banished, like we have uh, with the uh, criminalization of every natural substance on earth, pretty much. And then um, with those types of prohibitions, you are unable to exercise certain parts of your mind. And I think that's why we're seeing so much of an increase in mental health issues and uh, also age-related issues like dementia that seem to be uh, increasing at a staggering number. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're not using our mind the way it was intended to be used. I think we've learned a certain way to use it that benefits us in our day-to-day -day life and in our physical uh, environment. And that's what we reward. I think we punish everything else. Yep. And therefore, our mind hurts. I totally agree. There's, there's become this thing, I think I, think I, I, I blame the printing press, to be honest. Um, so like there's become this whole focus on thinking through things and this whole um this whole focus on semantic world and explaining mm -hmm. things through that and then shoving yourself into this uh these machines that then you do semantically or you do like the industrial revolution you do rote jobs you put stuff together in a factory then it moved on and then now you're explaining stuff you're typing stuff out where you're doing like everything's all based on this semantic um kind of memory that you that you have this like everything's a proposition now and it's become kind of a, a tyranny of semantics uh and then people are getting away from this you know unless you work in some particular job like construction or there are other jobs that people do it um, you know sometimes some types of artwork where it's physical art um or you know wilderness kind of things you're not participating participating with your environment like you used to and so you're losing certain types of memory. You're going to exercise certain types of memory. You're not doing, maybe you're doing your episodic memory, but you're not doing it well enough. Right. Or you're not doing your procedural memory tasks well enough. You're not like learning how to bake a cake, right? You're just like, you know, you're not learning how to ride a bike. Let's just say basic procedural memory things. So these right. things are just kind of becoming atrophied because everybody's being kind of shoved down into these small spaces and then they don't have the optionality or they have to travel outside for, outside to a place or go go further to get more options in what they can do that's not propositional space. That's not the semantic space. Right. I mean, we have lots of uh, different things in our body that work that way, right? We have lots of involuntary 
um, function that happens, whether it's our heart beating or our breathing, we have some control over that. We could increase yeah. our heart rate or decrease it based on the activities we choose to do. Same thing with our breathing, but we don't really have to think about that very much. It's just a process that happens. Right. And I think um, because so many of the processes in the body do that by default, I think that's why the default node network works the same way too. It just gets into the rhythm of things and tries to reward things for, you know, getting done quickly. Yeah. Quick wins, quick wins. I hate that term. Well, the thing is, if you're out there (laughs) contemplating whether that car is going to hit you or not, it's probably going to hit you. So you're not going to stand there and look at it like a deer in headlights. So that's one of those decisions you need to make quickly. And because of life being what it is in the world that we live in, whether it was 10,000 years ago where, you know, a saber tooth tiger would rip your face off or today, if a truck, you know, nails you, if you're standing there, you know, in an alternate state thinking about how stars work, you're not going to be rewarded for that. Yeah. What do you, so what, what's your take then on this, like rise in anxiety, like all this new generation, let's not even get into the depression side of it, but like, there's just all these young people I meet now, they all have anxiety issues. They're all just like super anxious about every little thing. Right. Because they're like that um, rat that keeps pushing the button for the reward. Right. right. Because you're going to get rewarded for achieving. You need to achieve. You need to achieve. Now you have 20 different tasks to achieve. You don't know where to start. The only thing you have is anxiety about the whole process. And so you're pushing all these buttons and you're getting all this stuff. You can't even deal with the rewards you're getting from a lot of these things. And yep. I think this is the problem. We're, we're forcing people to then do even more of that and do even more of that. If you look at it from the perspective, look, I'm a capitalist. I'm a big fan of America and how it was founded. But if I take a look at the corporate world that we live in, I have to say it's completely fucked. You cannot sustain quarterly earnings, having performance every quarter out. Apple is a $2 trillion company. How fucking big do you want them to go? Yeah. Every quarter to grow and grow and grow. It's impossible. And this is the problem. We've set these metrics for everyone else, right? Every day, you have to make a list. You have to achieve these things. You have to, this creates anxiety. It's it's unavoidable. It's not the human condition. Because it's unrealistic expectations. It's not about making tasks yeah. and completing yeah. them. I mean, we, we've set the time, like you just mentioned there. I think that was a great point. Um, we set the time horizon in front of ourselves at every quarter as yep. a business. Like if it's like having a goldfish memory, right? You just have to rush, 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 rush. Okay, what's the next test? Okay, we got the quarter. Oh, do it again, do it again. Some of the most successful things that that get me rewarded in time today are things that I've done in the past. Yeah. How does that work? Well, there's no long-term ability, a long-term plan. Everything's on short cycles. Um, Politics is on short cycles. Uh, Business is on short cycles of results and turnaround. Um, I heard a great uh, idea about this and this is probably just one piece of the puzzle, was uh, they blame the guy who created the spreadsheet. So the the first Excel sheet or the spreadsheet that came out, what you did was before you had like these businessmen who would go and they would they would have run the business for a long time. They were dealing with reality, butting up against reality, you know, rubber to the road kind of thing. And they were able to make certain long-term decisions, take certain risks, do certain R&D, so on and so forth. And then when you got these kind of spreadsheets that came onto the scene, you started getting these 20, 21, 22, 23-year-old kind of grads who could do a spreadsheet, run the numbers, look five years out, do this, do that. But they had actually no real-world experience. Right. And so they're and so, but they get hired because they're just coming right out of college. And they're put into these organizations. And then 
it just kind of when everything when the world started in the 80s 90s started getting over financialized everything was the fun this is when the financialization like the mass financialization started um and spreadsheets became king and then it became less about the interaction with the real world and with the market because the market isn't just a thing that's in a spreadsheet the market is human decisions interactions humans in the real world and all these things that you know that we know and love about capitalism um and it became this weird compartmentalized thing that is again more overly condensed and then decisions started being made on that basis instead of these real interactions with the real world and with the actual market itself hmm. yeah but so let's talk about psychedelics for a minute um, i you know i try to use psychedelics probably once a month once every two months um, just to rejog my brain into that state. I also try outside of that to practice that state of being um, yes. without the psychedelics because I want to be able, because I'm trying to integrate it. So I'll go and like try and have the exact same experience while looking at a tree, for example, which a lot of people will talk about or looking at the water or something like that or bugs or something. Um, and But it does jump you up to this higher state. Now, one of the differences I've noticed in psychedelics versus, for example, the dream state is that when people come out of a dream, they're very able, easily able to say, yeah, it was just a dream. It was cool. And, you know, they'll describe it and everything, but it was a, just a dream. And then they have a psychedelic experience. They'll think that's more real than the non-psychedelic experience. So they're attributing a layer of what is real to this, where they wouldn't do that to different states of being. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, when it comes to psychedelics, you're probably more experienced in taking them than I am. Mm -hmm. That's because I'm a very weird cat. I, I tend to, um, you know, get my PhD in something before I dabble my toe in it. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been studying one plant versus another right now I'm into mushrooms. So I've started doing that, but before that it was cannabis. And, uh, honestly, I'm really fascinated by things and their tolerances and what tolerance actually means. And I think this is very interesting because, uh, medicinally we think of tolerance. Okay. You're just not having the same effect. You're getting used to it, which mm -hmm. is like the word tolerance suggests, but you have to kind of look deeper at some of these psychedelics. If you take a look at something like um, Salvia Divinor, Diviner Sage, it actually increases the effect with the lower tolerance. As you build your tolerance for it, you need less of it to have the effect. In other words, not more. It's the opposite. Yeah. Really bizarre. Very interesting. And uh, that kind of got me thinking about a lot of this. And you, you are onto something. Yes. Unlike a dream state, when you are all the way in your, you know, when you're dreaming, there is no integration with your current conscious state because your current conscious state is completely unplugged. It's not there. And this is true with some psychedelic experiences, especially um, if you've taken enough of a dose. Uh, like with mushrooms, for example, you take a small dose, you're not going to feel anything. Yet you're going to reap a lot of benefit from microdosing. Yep. Right? If you take a nice heroic dose and uh, you take a shamanic journey, of course, you can go to a point where um, you are in another world. But even still, there is an anchor. There is a connection to this world, not like a dream state where you're completely gone. So I, I think it's it's that that thread, that connection that allows you to, if you choose to, 
to integrate that experience as something a lot more real than a dream. Yeah. I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan and he's the master of talking about DMT. Oh, he's my and, favorite. I love, yeah, I love Joe Rogan. He, I, I don't know who, I forget who was on his podcast, but they were talking about that. There are some current studies going on. I don't think any of them are finalized where there's obviously we've known for a while that DMT, uh, uh, you know, occurs naturally in the brain. Yes. But now they're thinking that it is part of the juice that helps the brain to function. So it's part of whatever, you know, absolutely. DMT is um, actually part of almost every living thing on this planet. Um, If you survey a bunch of plants around you, uh, I I bet you'll find uh, ones that have DMT in it. Um, The human brain, uh, specifically the pineal gland, does have a crystal structure there in the pineal gland that when uh, pressure, it's a piezoelectric type of thing, when pressure is applied, it will release DMT. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, the Hoffman method of the the, the Hoff method or the the Iceman, right? The, The breathing technique that he does. Right. Um, part of it is about cycling that spinal fluid back up into the pineal gland. That's what creates that. So by using these breathing techniques and everything, um, when you breathe in and you exhale, breathe in and breathe out, uh, part of your physiology changes. For example, when you're inhaling your skull, the plates that are sitting there, they expand. And when you breathe back out, that tailbone curls back in. That creates flow in your spinal fluid, causing it to cycle through your spine. It's it's, it's part of the mechanism of of cleaning um, toxins out of it. However, you can control that breathing to force that fluid to go back up into the pineal gland, releasing DMT. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that think is, that's that's an incredible mechanism that we have. Fascinating. There's another. Have you heard of the God Helmet? No, I have not heard of the God Helmet. So uh, the I God, think I want one. What is it? It's, co- it's colloquially named, obviously. Um, I don't know the actual name of the device, but what it does is, I think of it like a Professor X thing, where you put this helmet on and it sends electromagnetic waves through your brain at like a kind of a higher frequency. Um, and what they've done is. They have people who put this on and then whatever their base layer for belief system is, let's say if they're religious and they believe in angels and demons or they're more on the alien side or ghosts or whatever, robots, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, they start, um, quote unquote, hallucinating these figures. Interesting. So they'll see whatever it is in front of them. And it's so the, the idea is they think it's activating. It's something about it is making these DMT molecules just all of a sudden start racing around. Hmm. Just Where do I get one of these? Is this actually a real product? This is, this was a scientific experiment. It's not something you can buy at the store, um, but that it was, sense. it was touted by all sides of like, Hey, look, God exists. And then the other side say, look, God doesn't exist. I can simulate him with magnetic waves <laughs> for people. Um, so it was used in one of those stupid culture war things. Uh, but I think the, I think, the underlying I, I want one for some home decor so i could use it every so often right exactly put it on a <laughs> guest awesome. when they come in make them flip out um but it, it is amazing that when you also when you connect and disconnect certain circuits of what people can and will hallucinate just even through a belief system um so like for example uh there is this neuro neurological degenerative disease called copcross syndrome have you heard of this i have not copcross syndrome um, is when, you know, when you meet, uh, when you have formed a bond and like through oxytocin and have a relationship with somebody, you get this kind of warm rush when you hear them or, or see them mm-hmm. like a, a loved one, right? Yeah. That's not something we normally feel on a chemical level, but our body feels it. And we get that kind of, we get that, we get that little rush, even though we don't physically maybe feel it on the outside. 
So what happens with Copcross is it will disconnect your visual field from that signal. Hmm. And it's kind of just like a, oh, the wires aren't crossed, they're not connected, and it's like off-center, right? So mm-hmm. what's happened with people is they've grown up, for example, like their mother, love their mother, mother comes in, and now they when they see their mother, because they don't get that, that signal is not running through of that warm feeling, that they then, their brain goes, well, we didn't get that feeling. This is obviously not our mother. This is an imposter. Hmm. And they'll say, wow. maybe she's an alien with my mother's skin. Maybe it's a robot with my mother's, you know, thing. Whatever they think it is, it's some demon inhabiting my mother's body. And then people will actually flip out. And some people have, you know, murdered their relatives with this belief in their head. Because they really do believe that this is an imposter of relative. Now, it's only with the visual field. Whereas what they've done when they've had people in a controlled setting who went and were getting psychiatric care, um, they brought the mother in, they see the mother, and they're like, you're an imposter, get the fuck out of here, blah, 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 blah. And then they'll have the mother go to the next room, get on the phone, call their son or daughter, and when they hear their voice, they're like, oh, mom, it's you. And the connection makes it, and the signal is there, and they get the warm feeling. Wow. So it's a certain very particular miswiring. and. I, you know, uh, and so they've actually through their belief structure have hallucinated this, like, you don't even, you look like her, but you're not her and you're actually a robot. And blah, 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 blah. It's not like a classic visual hallucination, but it's actually the opposite where the visual cue isn't there mm-hmm. and they hallucinate because it isn't there. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's weird to me that, you know, all the stuff that's going on in there, you, you, there's, it seems to be this, you have to have this perfect balance and we can amplify some of these signals like the DMT naturally recurring in our brain, or we can cut it off from a certain area where it just needed a little bit in order to, you know, <laughs> have the appropriate response. I mean, we've always known there's dosage that makes the poison, right? Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's just always created me the, the fine line and the, the, the balance on, on those. But I wanted to ask you about psychedelics because since you're just getting into them, how do you view them um, as a tool for, to put it in a cliche way, uh, this self-enlightenment kind of thing? I see it as a catalyst. That's exactly why I'm so interested in it. I actually am learning as much about it as possible before I actually use it. So to me, um, it really is like a, a, a self-improvement workshop kind of thing that I'm going into. It's mm-hmm. not just about the escape and the experience, but I really want to um, understand the tools that I'm working with. I mean, if, if you want to perfect your body, you're going to spend as much time in the gym as possible. If you want to perfect your brain, you're going to start by spending as much time in your gym as possible as well, because that feeds the brain. But more importantly, you need to start exercising the brain. And uh, though you give it the nourishment and the treatment you get from physical exercise and diet, you still need to let it compute. That's what it does the best. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is by not holding back the algorithms that you have to work with. Yeah. Yep. Or at least tapping into them to see what they look like because you probably right. I mean, look, if you before. give a child calculus, they'll never learn math. Right. 
you need to start them with one plus one. You need to do baby steps. And that's kind of where I think most of our young adult life is. We need to get this default node network running so perfectly that it can do everything, including make money for us, the same way we breathe and do everything else. So we need to be at our peak there. Once we achieve that, and I think most of us don't achieve that in our lifetimes, I think that's part of the problem. I think if we do achieve that early on in life, we could start to focus on the different aspects of our mind and developing it further. And I think psychedelics play a crucial role as a catalyst in helping start those reactions and starting those conversations and starting those algorithms, doing things that we would never do. We always promote thinking outside of the box, yet we build a box that we lock ourselves in and throw away the key. And I, I think the key to thinking outside of this box is to realizing first that the answers are outside of the box and we need to access them. Yeah. And it can go the opposite direction too. you know, people who are uh, put into a certain environment, say the family they were born into or whatever it might be, the country they're in and that's in wartime or something like that, um, where they have not, like you said, made a solid base in this default node network. And then they're thrown down to the bottom rungs of this state of being. And some of them are able to, you know, find the resiliency and find the ability to crawl back up and, you know, and then they have a really strong bottom rung base and some of them get lost down there and they'll they'll commit suicide or they'll just kind of yeah. go crazy or they'll fall into addiction or whatever it might be. So yeah, I, I I agree with that. You need to that that kind of the middle ground, you need to solidify that first so that then you can go in either direction safely. And, and that's that's very important. And uh, let me just get back to what you mentioned before, something about energy. Mm -hmm. Right. We know energy cannot be destroyed, it can be transferred and all that wonderful stuff. But the most important description of energy that I think psychedelics help um, us uh, deal with is potential energy and kinetic energy. I mean, if you're holding up a rock really, really high, it has all the potential energy of coming down and crushing something. It doesn't actually turn into kinetic energy into that motion until you let go. Yeah. Right. And I think taking a psychedelic is the act of letting go. I, I think we have uh, the potential in our mind to achieve great things. We also have the potential for our mind to break if it's predisposed to it. If you're predisposed to schizophrenia or other things, mm -hmm. you can convert that potential into kinetic energy and you could actually trigger it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think it can work both ways with psychedelics where you can actually heal, you can create, you can build, but you could also destroy and hurt and maim a lot. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. All right, man. What do you think if we wrap it up around here? So really I think that's a great idea. I'd love to continue another time, but we only have two minutes here. So if there's anything else, let's wrap it in two and we're good. Yeah, I don't think so. But yeah, I definitely want to continue it on another uh, another time. We should definitely talk about this again. We went through multiple topics, um, but there's definitely always more to talk about, as you know. Absolutely. We should get into the specifics ones the next time. Like get into mushrooms and DMT and salvia different yeah. things like that cool yeah yeah let's have let's have it we went all over the place I mean, uh, I just uh, salvia like... is fascinating it scares me the most yeah um because it's a it's a 100 dissociative you take it you don't know you took it yeah it's one of those things Dissociatives you come back popular. you don't know you took anything yeah i've done uh, it before yeah it's... i've heard uh, of trip reports <laughs> where a guy took it 10 minutes later comes back and tells you a story of a life he lived for the last 30 years yeah <laughs> kids and all like another universe unbelievable yeah you can dissociate i've had so i've had a weird experience actually on acid uh once where i was in a half dream state half awake state but like mm. still fully on acid i was trying to i was just in bed 
I like had gone to a party, but we were still going strong. You know, my brain, nice. the chemicals still bump, bump, bumping. Yep. And I'm in bed. I literally lived a whole life from a little kid up to when I died in this overnight while I was quote unquote sleeping. And I remember the whole thing in detail, like emotional connections with people, you know, a friend of mine died there. Uh, I had successes and wins and wins and losses of myself and others. Um, The school I went to, like the whole thing, (laughs) I went through a whole lifetime and then I woke up in the morning and I'm like, what the heck was that? And I remembered it very vividly. And you probably still carry some of those memories with you. Yeah, I do. <laughs> That's the amazing part about it is that yeah. these are not just short little interludes into insanity. They're uh, incredible, powerful tools that allow you to map and understand your own mind. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a, a, a way to integrate these. And it's very helpful learning lessons that you can't learn elsewhere. So, all right, man, let's wrap it up there. Let's continue the conversation and have uh, a specific one for next time. You got it. Sounds great. Awesome. Great talking to you, dude.